This is Chattanooga Civics. I'm Nathan Bird. Mayor Kelly has been in office for one year. I sat down with him to discuss his goals, his successes, and his challenges. Before we start, I'm excited to announce the launch of the Chattanooga Civics newsletter. Keeping up to date with local government can be tedious. Not everyone has time to go to every city council meeting or to parse through the legalese of the official minutes. The Chattanooga Civics Newsletter will summarize the major civic events of each week into a single, easy-to-read email. The newsletter will go out every Monday starting on May 9th. Sign up today at chattanoogacivics.com. One last thing, I want to thank my Patreon sponsors, especially the Marks family, for supporting the show at the highest level. Please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash chatcivics. Kelly, welcome back to Chattanooga Civics. Thanks for joining us, and thank, thank you, you for making time in your busy schedule. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Well, I just want to start off really broadly. Uh, you have released a one Chattanooga strategic plan. Yep. That's kind of the framework for your administration, yes. and I just wanted you to spend a couple minutes talking about that, and you know, get people up to date on what that is, how they can find it, and you know, how we can. Keep track of it. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure when the podcast is going to be released, but it's uh, it's it's kind of like the worst kept secret in Chattanooga at this point because we've talked to so many community partners about it, but it hasn't publicly officially been released. Uh, in concept, I think it's really important, though, because essentially it's a strategic framework for you know what we plan to do over the course of the next three years and maybe more, and then how we kind of plan to do it, um, including you know seven key strategies. Um, it has a set of, you know, values that we think are really important because, you know, as it literally says in the document, I'm a big fan of that old saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. So if we don't talk about that, uh, that's a huge part of it. So it's, it's a 40 page document. I mean, it's not, uh, uh, not a, you know, two page executive summary. There's a lot to it, but we spent a lot of time, you know, uh, thinking through it. And, um, and so it will be out soon. And at that point it will, I'm sure it'll be posted on the city website. Great. Uh, Chattanooga.gov. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure where I found it then. I'm scratching yeah. my head because I have it printed out at home and I've read through it a couple of times. So well, that's it, outstanding. Yeah. I mean, there have been, somewhere. we've shared it with the, the equitable recovery commission, uh, which mm-hmm. is actually probably the best, um, vote of confidence we got is we gave it to them and said, look, if it stinks or if there's something missing, mm-hmm. um, tell us, right? I mean, you're, you're welcome to make any edits and carve it up. That's one of the reasons we haven't publicly released it yet, mm-hmm. uh, but they didn't. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of McKinsey and company that consultancy likes to talk about, uh, which I love as a framework, you know, things that are MISI is the acronym they use, mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. In other words, it needs to be, it needs to talk about everything, but not be duplicative and sort of fit, fit all fit together in a, in a comprehensive way. And it, and I think it does, right? So it, um, um, we can talk about any element. I mean, we can spend the rest of the podcast talking about it, honestly, because <laughs> there's a lot to it. Um, but, but I do think it's, um, I think we're making one last minute edit to it around okay. transportation. Um, but, but what you saw is, is largely, um, 
the plan. And uh, again, we've shared it with the faith community. We've shared it with the philanthropic community, just saying like, are we on base, off base? And mm-hmm. I, I think we're, I think we're there. Good. Well, everybody yeah. listening, keep an eye out for that grand release. And yeah. That'll be the framework for the next, like you said, next three or yeah. maybe more years. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I want to just, you know, start off real broad and just see how things are going. And, and I want to know, you know, what is the accomplishment that you've been most proud of in your first year here as mayor? I know well, there's been a lot going on and, yeah. and a lot of it has just been kind of laying the groundwork. But. Well, that's, that's it. Right. And so this is stuff that is not politically exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I'm probably most proud of the talent we've been able to attract to Chattanooga from, from elsewhere. And because largely again, it's, um, uh, I, I'm not, not casting aspersions on prior administrations in, in any way, shape or form. A, a lot of it was just due to COVID, but things were kind of a mess, you know? And, and so, and then some of it was a change in strategic focus. I mean, not radically different. Um, I wouldn't say, I mean, we kept a lot of, a lot of folks in a lot of positions here, but others have, you know, have changed. And, um, I mean, again, we can go into detail there, but in the aggregate, right, we've spent, I would say 75 or 80% of our time just, um, rewiring and, and fixing and getting to, to go back to another, uh, kind of hackneyed old, uh, you know, business book analogy, getting the, getting the right people in the right seats on the bus and getting the bus going in the right direction. Uh, we're still very much involved in that, mm-hmm. but we've been able to attract some really phenomenal talent who, again, I'm almost pains me to say, but I mean, probably the, um, the, <laughs> the, the, the greatest testament to, to the, to the achievement, uh, and to their, these peoples and there's more than one dedication to the cause is mm-hmm. that they took some pretty big pay cuts to come to work at the city. I mean, we can't compete, you know, with the private market, particularly up at the executive level. Right. Um, but these are all people who came here because they believed in the mission that we were and the vision that, that we're projecting for the city. And they believe in the, in the future of the city and, and it's incredible potential as, as I do. So that, is is definitely my, my my proudest accomplishment thus far yeah do you mind just giving kind of a quick who's who of you know letting people know who's in charge of what departments yeah you can see the kind roughly. of the remains of some of the org chart up there we're looking uh for those of you watching at home uh or not watching at home but uh, there's a big uh uh big whiteboard here with a lot of scrabbling on it and the thing in the middle is kind of what's left that it was covered with the whole um mm-hmm. org chart and um so we um uh, there, there are a bunch. I mean, we can go department by department, but, um, um, you know, again, we, we attracted Dr. Mary Lambert, um, our director of community health, who, I mean, is a full bird colonel, you know, has worked at the CDC and the department of defense. I mean, my God, so far below her pay grade, right? But Chattanooga is her home. She loves it. Um, she will probably return at some point to teaching at Vanderbilt, but she was a huge get, um, uh, Tamara Stewart, who just took over as our chief equity officer, came to us from TVA. I don't know what sort of cut she took, but I know she took one because, again, she believes in in what we're doing here and our ability to really affect structural change in the interest of equity. Um, Scott Martin, the guy that came to take over uh, Parks and Outdoors, mm-hmm. came from a, a really highly regarded um, nonprofit in Louisville that was working on um, parks issues there and in his own right, a rock star in the parks and outdoors world and um, was not even looking for a, for a job per se. Um, 
he later told us that he just, you know, Chattanooga's reputation preceded it in, in the outdoor and parks world. And that if he could, you know, have it be in this reframe parks and outdoors department here, that this is where he wanted to, to bring his family and retire. Uh, he was a huge get. Dan Reuter, uh, the, the head of uh, planning, came up from uh, uh, Atlanta, was, uh, was, uh, was on the Atlanta Regional Planning Commission. Uh, he's seen it all before, you know, particularly on the scale of Chattanooga a couple of times, right? Mm-hmm. So um, uh, our, our public works director, Tom Hutka, you know, uh, undergraduate degree from Princeton and a graduate degree from Harvard and a public works director, mind you. Uh, and uh, he came from a larger market in Florida. Um, uh, so, and the list, the list just goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tyson Morris, the guy who's um, – who is our new, um, we're calling IT now, um, uh, technology services, but it's IT is what you would call it. But he came from Coca-Cola, corporate in in Atlanta, because he wanted to be in Chattanooga, right? And uh, so the list goes on and on, as I was saying. And and again, we really, it's been hard work to do all those interviews and and sift through all those resumes. And again, that's just the top layer of management. There are many below that. and I, I should mention too, Ryan Ewald again, the our COO, who came from he was at VW and then was at Unum, uh, and is a completely apolitical fixture here. Doesn't know or care a thing about politics. You know, dirty little secret. Neither do I really. Uh, it, you know, he is dedicated uh, entirely to helping me um, reframe the culture at the city um, and rebuild cohesive. Uh, organizational structure and and really kind of the muscle of the organization to be able to serve the citizens of Chattanooga better. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's uh, from the outside looking in. I mean, that's just boring. You know, it's like watching a duck swim across a pond. You can't see the little feet going, but but they're going hard, right? And um, and 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 it's really really important work. Mm-hmm. So that it will it's kind of a go slow to go fast thing, and that it will pay great dividends later. Um, but again, it's, it's, uh, I, I wish I could, uh, it, it would be easier to be able to point to some big monument or something that we had built tangible, but, uh, but, but it's really, really important and I'm proud of it. So this might be the same answer. It sounds like just based off of, you know, all the interviews you had to do and everything, yeah. but what has been the biggest challenge of this first year as mayor? Well, that that's been it, right. You know, um, Depending on, we had some departments here. Um, shout out to our fire department. Uh, really, a shiny example of of a, of a department that was really focused in on mission. Not at all confused about why they're here. Really, really, you know, just just a fantastic. I mean, we didn't have to lift a finger, right? But but just really, really, really well led under uh, Chief Phil Hyman. But. Um, but that was not the case everywhere. So the challenges were um, plenty in various departments, and particularly in uh, in certain internal departments that you know that were really critical to the functioning of other departments, like mm-hmm. HR. Mm-hmm. Um, just, um, I think it'd been a long time, very frankly, since we had a mayor that was really focused on, for lack of a better word, management and 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 HR in particular. Again, uh, some fantastic people down there. I'm not trying to you know, um, cast aspersions on anybody that was there prior. A lot of it was just not being tuned in and sort of tied together and a lack of leadership. But, um, but, you know, anybody that's been in any 
company of any size knows that if, if HR is not functioning well, nothing is going to function well. I mean, mm-hmm. you're literally as only good as your only as good as your people. So the challenge has really been, and again, COVID was a massively disruptive event. Not just the pathogen and the public health piece, but what it did to organizations, just mm-hmm. in terms of just scattering everybody and everything to the wind. Um, and so, again, getting everybody back on the same page, back in the office, um, and, and kind of getting, getting everybody re, re, reoriented around our mission, which is, I think, pretty well elucidated in the One Chattanooga plan, has been a big challenge. So I want to shift into some kind of more focused policy questions. Yeah. And I want to start with uh, your affordable housing initiative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you announced this a couple of weeks ago, uh, just a couple numbers from the press release, you cited a, a 5,000 unit affordable housing shortage mm-hmm. that you plan to address with, I think it was 30 something million dollars in pri- in public money yep. that will then leverage another 60 something million dollars in public money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just want to start by asking where, where's that number coming from for the 5,000 affordable unit shortage? How did that how did you arrive at that? We there are, as wouldn't surprise you to learn, probably uh, a lot of uh, nonprofits and think tanks out there who who to do this, mm-hmm. um, and that's an estimate, right? It's a it's an estimate we've derived. I would say it's somewhere between thirty five hundred and five thousand. Um, but you know, look, it's it's a one house at a time strategy, or or one you know. Um, one unit at a time, I'd, I'd say. I mean, we're big believers in, in density and densification. Um, you know, multifamily housing is not a bad word, and part of our challenge is going to be around around uh, making folks understand that. But it, it certainly is a crisis in that, you know, the median house here has gone from, I want to say, like 190,000 to 290 or 280 and change. I mean, it's a meteoric jump Mm -hmm. and uh no question it's related to the rise in homelessness um and um it's it's driving out you know uh historical residents of chattanooga so ultimately you know the the economic equivalent of the law of gravity is supply and demand so uh we're working with uh the private market and with the philanthropic community to really look at at how we can create creative capital stacks to unlock more investment. And and some of this is supply chain related, obviously. Uh, And hopefully that knock on wood um, is, is going to get better, but you know, the, the urgency is very, very real. So the, the $30 million in in public money, Mm -hmm. where is that coming from? What funds is that being? Some of it is, some of it is carried over from last year's budget surplus from last year's budget which we were lucky that we, we are carrying forward another surplus. Right. Um, last year's surplus was used to help fund those raises for, um, for police and firefighters, which is not, you know, 24% is a massive jump, and that's what right. we had to do to, to just get to scale. Um, so some of it is carried over from last year's budget. Some of it will be from uh, this year's budget. Yeah, and some of it, I think, I'm trying to think of the exact number, but some of it, these on my desk here are all stacks of applications for the Equitable Recovery Commission, the the American Rescue Plan dollars, and okay. um, the, the that draft will be out later. But you know, not surprisingly, top of the list of concerns is affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So some of it will probably come from that federal uh, pot of money as well. Right. And so just to clarify, this is all that that thirty million dollar number. That's all 
cash. That's not no, that's all cash. Incentives that's or anything or that's being no. kind of rolled in mm -mm. To, to make the number. No, bigger. it's a real it's number. I mean, cash. you can actually see it up there on the screen or on the screen on the whiteboard. Um, about a third of it we expect will will be direct subsidy. Um, two thirds of it will be financial instruments to try to incentivize development through community development, financial institutions, loans, et cetera. Uh, interestingly, um, that piece on the left in orange, which you can't see at home, um, is not included in that number, but that is the city owns a ton um, of both surplus property, back tax property, and, um, and property that is probably you know, that can be contributed right. to this effort. And that is not included in that number. Okay. Uh, so it, it's a significant commitment. So is that something that I guess it's still being worked through in, in terms of how yes. that land might get distributed and, and yeah, utilized? Yeah, well, so what we're doing for sure is reconstituting the land bank. Mm -hmm. So we had a land bank, which ponderously never conferred the first piece of property. I don't know why. I won't go back and relitigate the past, but it never did. Um, but it, you know, that's the idea. We had to actually, it, it, the charter expired. We had to stand it back up. Uh, the city will then confer the property to the land bank and then the land bank will have its own board okay. and the land bank will then decide, you know, whether to just contribute pieces of property outright or, you know, how land lease or, yeah, you know, something there's all sorts of mechanisms. They may, they that. may have enough property to charter, um, or to contribute to, um, you see the other, you know, acronym up there, uh, their own community land trust, which is another concept people should um, should research mm -hmm. because that's mm -hmm. uh, that's another concept we've been looking at to help address the problem. Yeah, no, um, I hope it's still up, but I believe Caleb did a study about yeah, they did. community land trust. That's I where we got the idea. Back. I mean, th those guys so, were great. They they brought us um, a study of a, really an initial study from Burlington. Associates, mm -hmm. I think, out of Burlington, Vermont. Um, and so that's where I first learned of the concept. And, and again, we are still uh, moving in that direction. So I'll link that study in the show notes. Yep. And I'll, I'll try and uh, maybe hopefully do a, an episode just about that to kind of lay the groundwork. That would be right. Um, you know, because it's a, it's a really interesting tool for sure. Yeah. And there's a lot of potential to it. Absolutely. Um, so I want to talk about the private money now. How do you see that being utilized and and where do you see it even really coming from? I mean, is it? Are you assuming businesses are just going to build no. affordable housing housing in cash? Or no, not at what all. What kind of incentives are, are at play here? So there are a ton. It really and and this is, I'm not often, um, um, you know, really. I mean, I'm generally very proud of how how forward thinking Chattanooga is as a community. Um, I will say in this case, we are well behind the curve, well behind the curve uh, in in the concept of of impact investing. Right. So there are I was just on a call this morning with the Heron Foundation. Again, if you want to link that in your show notes, the Heron Foundation is kind of the leader nationally uh, in this type of work. Uh, massive foundation that has switched over. It, so typically the way foundations work is, um, you know, they have a giant portfolio, generally stocks and bonds, right? Uh, they get back, let's say, a 7% return. Uh, they, they keep 3% to kind of roll over to keep up with inflation, and they give away 4%. So they they're, they take the cream off the top, as it were, and they give that away as grants. What impact investing does is say, wait a minute, um, you know, we're sitting on a hundred million bucks here 
And what is it exactly? You know, we bought bonds, you know, from Exxon or, you know, it's corporate debt or even municipal bonds from other cities. Or we bought a thousand shares of Microsoft. Does Microsoft have an office in Chattanooga? It does not, right? And so it goes back to kind of thinking about circular economy issues and saying, well, if there's a project that, and again, giant caveat, right? It's got to be a project that will provide returns so that the, you know, the whole idea, the baseline, if you're a fiduciary for a foundation is that you've got to be able to protect the corpus, right? It's got to be able to roll forward so that you can continue to do good, Mm -hmm. But if there are investment opportunities, you know, locally, then you should be doing that, right? And and they've been doing it at the Heron Foundation for over 20 years. Uh, and so this is not a wheel that needs to be reinvented. But the way that it works is that a lot of times philanthropic entities will come in and invest. Um, and it might be, they may do a loan guarantee or they may do an investment and say, you know, look, we only need 3% return. Because why invest for a 7% return and, you know, keep three and give away four. If, if all we, you know, if we can keep three and then the rest is social return because we just help create affordable housing, you know, uh, it's a, it's a really powerful concept. And again, it is being used elsewhere broadly and not just not so much here yet. That in turn, I, I used the term earlier, you know, creative capital stack, that in turn can de-risk private investment from banks, from community development, financial institutions, CDFIs, et cetera, right? So uh, we're not, we're not, there's a way to do this without appealing to people's, uh, you know, higher moral selves. Uh, although, I mean, that's great. There, there are, there are private um, donor advised funds who can make investments in this sort of thing. But um, there are, and, and again, I don't want to bore people with the alphabet suits, but uh, soups rather. But but banks, uh, again, thanks in this case to um, federal banking regu- regulations, have a a budget right uh, or, or certain requirements for community reinvestment that they need to make for which they earn credits, and so. That's that's good. You can see four percent. Litech is up there on the. I don't even know what Litech stands for. But <laughs> banks, um, the, you then create the you know investment vehicle for banks to be able to invest in in these projects as well. So I feel like we can get to our hundred million dollars, particularly mm-hmm. with um, you know with co investment from philanthropy, as I described. And again, the city's now got a significant amount of skin in the game too. Right. So what what kind of projects do you? Is there even really a goal for what kinds of projects in particular this will be funding, or is this just kind of whatever we can grab? You know, is this going to new housing? It's, uh, it's housing vouchers. It is all family, single family. It's all of the above. I mean, the the basic premise is that because of that supply and demand issue, right? That if you create supply anywhere, you're going to help affordability everywhere. And so that is the idea. I mean, we're not going to do, we've said the fund will support everything up to uh, 120% of um, average median income. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not the right acronym. Uh, annual median income, I suppose, but AMI, as it's commonly referred to, which would include workforce housing, right? So that's not, this is not, we're not talking about just what we would think of as housing projects, although that could certainly be part of it. Um, where... You know the I guess the current thinking uh, in the in the planning and development community is really 
that uh, fixed or rather not, not fixed mixed income housing works works better anyway for a number of different reasons right so um, the the redevelopment of the uh, of the, the of the west side uh, the college hill courts uh, development um, will probably feature a lot of that and it's a massive undertaking mm-hmm. uh, so but that's the angle that we're going to be looking to take is more of that sort of mixed use and mixed income development right i just i kind of want to point out and and maybe have you defend this a little bit um the the supply and demand concept is is surprisingly to me controversial to Mm -hmm. a lot of people a lot of people just for some reason don't believe that housing follows that kind of supply and demand curve so if you could just Talk to that for I, a minute. Any any studies you've seen or uh, any resources you can point people I, I to? I could be naive, but I mean, again, I've been studying economics for my entire adult life, and I don't. I, I've yet to find anything that ultimately does not revert supply and demand. There there are market distortions that can kind of uh, create little, um, you know, dam walls that keep that that keep the market from functioning that way uh, in in temporary. Um, ways, but ultimately uh, it is always the answer. I mean, I don't know a market in the history of <laughs> mankind that doesn't eventually re- you know, respond to supply and demand. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you increase the supply uh, of something and the demand stays fixed, prices will fall. Right. Um, you know, uh, so I, I, it's just, it, it's the baseline rule of, of, uh, uh, of economics eventually, to me anyway. Mm-hmm. So I want to shift. This is related, and, and it's a tool that you've already talked about a little yep. bit earlier on, but zoning mm-hmm. uh, is, is, I'm sure, going to play a big part in this affordable housing concept. It you, will. You talked about the, the transition to mixed use, to middle density, and, and you know making that shift to densifying our city a little mm-hmm. bit. Yep. So uh, one of the first examples, an early kind of step forward in that realm has been uh, the planning commission recently just recommended to approve an amendment to the city code allowing accessory dwelling units that's right in every zone that allows single family housing i mean Correct. that's that is a huge change yep. and that's going to be going before the city council in may yep. um what potential do you see in accessory dwelling units or adus as they're they're commonly called and you know just kind of talk about why this tool was chosen. Okay. Well, again, this is an area where, again, we're we're following. We're not leading. There are a lot of other cities that have woken up to this. And from the, uh, you know, since we came in the door, again, things do take longer here. Um, I, I've been advocating for the idea, and it sort of took this long. One of the issues was getting a new um, planning director in place. But look, I mean, it, as far as potential, it could nearly double our, back to the supply and demand issue, our supply. Um, of housing, right? Because if if not that it would happen, I mean, but if everybody chose to build a little garage apartment um, in their R one single family house, um, and it and it almost doesn't matter, you know, if it's your grandmother or a college student, um, or, or your, you know, um, it, it just, you know, or if you're just going to rent it out to uh, to somebody off the street, right? Uh, you have created that much housing supply uh, and you've created value in the home itself mm-hmm. uh, because you've created the, the, you know, the net present value of the future stream of incomes for what that, what that thing would rent for. Um, it's just, it's, it's always and forever a good thing. I think that the United States has woken up to that um, in general. So we are just right. really just kind of jumping on the bandwagon. So I'll play devil's advocate for a minute mm-hmm. and, and talk about in, in my experience, 
you know, I, I'm a civil engineer. I work in development. I go to these planning commission meetings yep. and I see the kinds of opposition that density tends to bring, yes. even if it's something as simple as changing an R1 parcel to an R2 parcel mm-hmm. to allow a duplex yep. in a, in a traditionally single family neighborhood. Yep. Uh, whereas, you know, allowing ADUs by right is not quite the same, but similar to almost changing the entire city to R2 zoning. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this is something that people worry about impacts to their, their property values. Yep. And this plays directly into that affordable housing piece because, you know, you can protect high home values or you can promote affordable housing. I don't really see a way to do both. Yeah. So I guess just give the pitch to our listeners of, of why this collective agreement to add density in every zone in the city is beneficial to everyone. Well, again, it is a balancing act, right, between supply and demand. And, and one thing that was left out of that prior example is that, I mean, again, if you increase supply, demand stays the same, um, prices will fall, right? So you're right. Uh, but but I think if you look at this meteoric rise in, in home prices, um, it's not it's it's out of balance. It's a and it is in fact a balancing act. It's not as though, you know, the world's going to go out and suddenly, um, you know, um, I, I doubt hire contractors to go build garage apartments. Um, in some respects, I, I hope they do, but it's, it's not realistic. Right. So, and, and you said it yourself, right. It's, it's, it's almost like automatically rezoning to R2, but it's not, uh, there are some fundamental and key differences mm-hmm. there, uh, that, that make it, that make it different. I don't, again, and I, in, in this case, uh, if you think about it, remaining within a single family, you know, parcel and unit, it's going to increase the value of those houses, not, not decrease it because of that, um, that stream of rental income. So I, it's not a, uh, um, that's not a concern that I, that I have. Although, uh, again, um, you know, we haven't talked about short-term vacation rentals yet, but the economics matter, right? I had a developer that called me and said, when that moratorium was introduced, which by the way, council introduced it was, and I agreed with it, but I, but, but, but I, from the mayor's office did not. Um, and he said, you know, man, I just lost a sale on a $500,000 townhouse on the South side because of that. And <laughs> sorry, man. And yeah, I mean, that's, you know, but, but seriously, right. I mean, that, what does that tell you? It tells you that somebody was who didn't live here and mm-hmm. uh, wasn't going to live in it. It was monetizing it through, you know, the the higher uh, cash flows that come from renting the thing daily, and it's taking a unit that somebody could live in off the market. Uh, so, so does does it mean that 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 housing prices prices are going to taper off? I damn sure hope so. Because it can't keep on like it's keeping on, mm-hmm. and and expect people to be able to afford to live in Chattanooga on a on a working wage, right? Yeah. So another this is this is a little broader. We're zooming out a bit, but the city recently released a zoning analysis performed by a consulting company, Cameros. Yep. I think I'm pronouncing that there right. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, this analysis it's available on the city zoning website for anybody listening, and yep. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. But it makes some very broad recommendations, yep. which essentially amounts to a complete overhaul yes. of our zoning code. Yep. I mean, it is 
very broad yep. in its recommendations. Uh, you know, how is your administration going to pursue further action on these recommendations? What What's kind of the timeline? It's full speed what ahead. What does it look like? Yeah. I mean, again, this is one of the projects that I came in the door talking about, and we are, we are proceeding apace because our current zoning code um, is – complicated it's twisted i mean i think if you read the executive summary they're polite um but there are many cases in which you know ordinance and zoning code are messed up and mixed up it's it's a it's a basket case so uh we have the really great natural experiment uh an example of the fact that knoxville just went through this right up the road for anybody that's really interested in this sort of thing and they were very, very happy with the results. But, I mean, the idea here is to simplify the zoning code to make it. I mean, I think I'm sure there are some people listening who are um, the policy wonk types um, like you and I. But there are that. But zoning, it should not be, you know, calculus. Right. I mean, people rank and file folks in Chattanooga should at least understand the broad strokes and be able to. And um uh, and again, that's the idea is to make it simpler, to make it more flexible, to make it more commonsensical. And very frankly, I think the planning community has woken up, I know, collectively uh, to their role in, uh, in equitable housing policies. And, uh, and that needs to be corrected as well. Right. Um, well, it's exciting because zoning is a personal hobby horse of mine. Yeah. And, and I've said before that you shouldn't have to hire a lawyer or a civil engineer to Hallelujah. understand your zoning code. Any, Hallelujah. anyone with a middle school education should be able to read it and, uh, and know what they can do with their property. Hell yes, absolutely. You see, it should be in plain English. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a simple litmus test, right? Same thing's true. I might add of uh, the sign ordinance here, which again, we will get to eventually, but mm-hmm. good luck with that. If you, again, I think that we covered this on the first podcast we did, but you really want to see a really, really great example of the bullshit uh, that we're cursed with currently, um, go download the, the current city sign ordinance off the website. I think it's 80 pages or something. I mean, it's, it's incomprehensible. I don't even know a, a lawyer that can faithfully interpret it. And it's, it's, it's awful. So, so zoning is more important and more impactful. So we're, we're starting there, but by God, we'll get to the sign ordinance eventually. Cause, mm-hmm. cause that is broadly, uh, Chris Anderson is now here, focused on that project and that project alone and just setting them up and knocking them down one project at a time. And, and, uh, zoning is the most important and it's going to take the longest to fix. So that's yeah. where we're starting. Yeah. So how does that, uh, coordination look between the executive office here and the city council who mm-hmm. actually, I mean, they're in charge of zoning Absolutely. For the charter. That's entirely their bailiwick yep. and you can make recommendations, but it's up to the council to say yes or no. And that's why Chris is the perfect guy for the job. And, and it's a tough job, but you know, that's why it is his sole focus because essentially he has to go out, work with Dan Reuter on, on recommendations and Camaros, and then connect with the city attorney's office to make sure that the whole thing works legally and then connect with council, explain it to council, get their feedback, you know, make sure that they're all on the same page and that we have the votes and then try to get it passed and then move mm-hmm. on to the next one. So it's, you know, not nothing. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a full-time that's a big job. Lift. It's a big lift. And, but Chris is the right guy. You know, he, he worked in the building industry. Um, he gets a lot of stick for, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, because uh, you can agree or disagree with uh, some of the policies of uh, contractors that he's worked for. But he knows the landscape is the point. He knows it well. 
And, you know, as a former city uh, councilman, he also understands the legislative piece. He understands best practice. So I think he's really the right guy for the job. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about homelessness, which mm-hmm. is in a lot of ways downstream from this affordable no housing issue. Definitely not a one-to-one relationship. No, but, but it's, it's, it's related. certainly related. And one big plan that people have been hearing a lot about is the idea for a city-sanctioned homeless camp. Yep. Um, down near the 11th Street area. And I just want to know, like, what is the status of that? Yep. Uh, what hurdles remain to be overcome? And, you know, where can we kind of find yeah. out more about that plan? So it should be, knock on wood, open on May 15th. Uh, oh, wow. That's, okay. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. It's taken too long, very frankly. Um, I'm, I'm considering the notion of, of declaring a state of emergency around homelessness based on our point-in-time count that we just got. Um, you know, it, it hit me last week that it's like part of the problem. I mean, I've been in here a year and we really haven't made, now we've done some, some significant things that people haven't seen. We funded an eviction prevention initiative that's kept 400 people from being evicted or the homeless problem would be even worse. Mm-hmm. But, uh, it's frustrating to me that we haven't made more tangible, demonstrable progress, um, and we just need to treat it like an emergency. It is an emergency. I mean, we're seeing that from the numbers. So that would speed things up if we do declare a state of emergency around homelessness. But uh, the fact is, you know, the, the camp will be open again, everything on track on May the 15th. Um, the holdup, you know, we it, it will be sanctioned in that it will be actively managed. And we're in the process of working through the scope of work and the contract with the provider that will that we'll look after the camp. Um, and then we're also talking to um, Pallet, you know, a company out in Washington that actually manufactures these kind of miniature uh, houses um, uh, that can act as temporary shelter uh, to, to put some on the site as you know, well, there'll be tents out there as well. So it's happening mm-hmm. um, just not quite as quickly as I'd like. And um, you know, and, and we look at scaling, look forward to scaling that from there and really creating you know, a ladder so that, right. so that we can get folks kind of up and out to include supportive housing and, you know, the motel we purchased as well. Mm-hmm. So is there going to be any services associated with this camp at opening or is that kind of a longer term? I think plan? it'll be a longer term thing okay. and not, not long thereafter, but, but some it's going to shortly thereafter up. it will, yeah, it will, it will ramp up. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to move on shift topics almost entirely yep. and, and talk about something might be a little controversial, but I want to talk about the Lookout Stadium. Oh yeah, that's right. And the uh, the letter you sent to the governor, if you mm-hmm. could just explain to everyone kind of what the ask is, just just lay it out. And yeah, say, I'll, I'll give you the whole background. What are we What are yep. we asking for? Um, I guess the main background is is should or should we not have public money go to fund a stadium for the Lookouts on the old Wheel and Foundry yep. U.S. pipe site? Yep, yep. Exactly. So, what was your ask to the governor? 13 million bucks. And that was based on the fact that Knoxville had just gotten 13. Actually, I, I take it back. It was 20 because what we were looking for is 7 million for Brownfield cleanup. Yes. It's and a then very thir- dirty site. Yeah. And then 13 for, uh, for, you know, a subsidy of the project itself. That was based on the fact that Randy Boyd, former, um, gubernatorial candidate himself and the current president of the state of the University of Tennessee, had moved a, a minor league team to Knoxville and had gotten a $13 million subsidy. And so the idea was, well, you know, um, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Why not? Right. The state has got a lot of money right now, a lot of excess cash, not, you know, as, as I'm reminded uh, very often, that doesn't mean that they should just go give it away. 
But unlike Knoxville, where they only had, you know, I think six or seven uh, acres on the apron to develop, uh, as I've said many times, this is not about subsidizing the lookouts per se. It's about what it's going to take to create that anchor tenant to develop the, and here again, unlike Knoxville, there's 130 or so acres around that site, which if we can kick off, you know, um, and it is very much like a pump priming or fire starting exercise, a cycle of investment at that site, um, we'll wind up producing a ton of jobs, a ton of tax revenue and public benefit that will far exceed um, any amount of public subsidy from from the state or from uh, or, or from the city or the county. Mm-hmm. And I should add, um, kind of a administrative oversight on our part, not having the county mayor countersign that letter, but 100% on the same page with Jim Coppinger and the county mayor, all those discussions began uh, in earnest together uh, and in parallel. So it was really Mayor Coppinger and I uh, making that ask. Um, I, you know, look, I'm a big fan of the but-for rule, right? I mean, so there has to be public benefit. But in this case, again, the math is really compelling. Um, we, we, we would, uh, you know, we're working through it now. We're, we're not, doesn't look like going to get the money from, from the state, um, which is disappointing considering the fact that, uh, apparently, you know, the state felt, uh, felt it was right to, um, you know, give the Titans $500 million for a, for a stadium. Um, Memphis got 30 something odd million dollars for various, they weren't sports related, but they were, they were somewhat. Uh, they, they got a new, um, I think they've got some cruise ships coming in there and they got, they, they got some right. money that, that are along the same, along the same lines. And I should say, can't really lay this at the governor's feet. Um, oddly enough, it was members of our own delegation who, who kind of shot it out of the saddle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say we're fortunate for the, for the, uh, the, the, there's sort of an instant tax increment financing, um, provision built into the sports authorities bond issuing authority so that tax revenue generated inside the stadium goes to help pay to relieve the debt. And that's baked in, but again, this is really getting in the weeds, but there was a, they had put a population cap on that for whatever reason that they, that they did get or are getting lifted, I believe. And and that's good. That's positive. So it's, it's not nothing. Right. um, But I can't say I'd be lying if I say I wasn't disappointed in the fact that, uh, Apparently, you know, uh, every other major city in the state, you know, is good enough for direct subsidy from the state of Tennessee, but right. not so, Chattanooga. So I understand and, and people I've talked to understand uh, why this particular site is is under the microscope for yep. receiving state funding. It, yep. It's the gateway to Chattanooga if you're coming from Alabama or Nashville no, no. or, you know, yeah. you come around Moccasin Bend and boom, you see the old wheel and foundry warehouse and it's just bombed out and it looks rough yeah but it's right along a major corridor to downtown both from the interstate and on broad street so it makes sense why that is a candidate for for public funds but the question i've received a lot and the question i'm asking myself is why this project uh you know stadiums have historically you know Dozens of economic studies have shown that stadiums generally are are not a great use of public funds. They yeah. usually have very low return on investment, uh, well, and and I, they can they can pick up and move. Yeah, the, they but, they can pick up and move, and and sometimes you know even 
in, in the case of minor league baseball. Yeah. I mean, minor league baseball is not in the strongest position right oh, now. So I mean, I, I'm just curious why this project and not any number of other yeah. possible anchors. Yeah. At uh, that well, I'll say this. The studies that you're re- referencing generally are based around studies of stadiums uh, around the Olympics, right? So it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a scale question. Uh, Olympic scale investments and investment in stadiums don't work. I mean, mm-hmm. that has been shown, right? Uh, cities that host the Olympics generally are making very bad bets, but w- this is not that. This right. is not that, right? We're talking about a, a relatively in the, in the greater scheme of civic investment, a relatively paltry sum of money. Mm-hmm. Um, again, look at the, t- the Titans idea too. Um, again, look, I started a, what is now a professional soccer team mm-hmm. without a dime of public money. I'm not defending the American sports oligarchy. Uh, I'm a huge foe of it, but it is what it is. I'm not going to, we are not going to change that. And if we don't build a new stadium down there, the lookouts will leave. It's the second oldest minor league baseball team in the country. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's not a good thing objectively. Right. And third, Again, there hasn't been a uh, professional sports stadium built anywhere in this country in the last probably 20, 25 years without some public subsidy. Right. So, uh, so, and again, so I, I think I'm, I don't, the only utility to me publicly is that, is that again, there's a reason that it happens despite all that over and over again around the country because it does spur public investment. Uh, or rather private investment and public investment uh, in the surrounding area. Uh, we went to Columbia, South Carolina, very, very similar market, very similar situation on a couple of hundred acres where, in fact, you know, it had already, it has already unlocked um, a couple hundred million bucks. And I think on the Wheeland site, I think the high-end estimates, probably it will wind up unlocking $500 million to perhaps even a billion dollars of investment, and that will create a massive lift in terms of not only property tax, but sales tax, jobs, et cetera. So uh, the fact that it's baseball is almost uh, um, inconsequential mm-hmm. to me. I mean, it's I'm looking at it strictly from the utility of it being an anchor tenant to unlock the rest of the investment. Because right. I'm not an endorser, nor am I a, you know, again, Chattanooga FC was started without it. Not only that, not, not only did we never take a dime of public money, we actually took, we kind of put money back in the coffers because we made Finley Stadium solvent, which it was not before and having to take public money. So I'm not defending, mm-hmm. uh, again, different podcast. I'm happy to come on and talk <laughs> about how messed up uh, the fact that, a lot of billionaires basically run professional sports in the United States and, and throw their weight around. Uh, not here to defend that in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, but this is a really relatively cheap date. And if we weren't getting more out of it than we were putting into it, I would not be for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's what it boils down to is, like you said, no stadium has been built in the last several decades without right. public money. But there there's a growing understanding that Maybe that shouldn't be the case anymore. I, I do, I, listen, I agree, but like I'm the mayor now. This is on my watch, right? Right. And if the lookouts again, who've been here, who are an integral part of of the city's history, uh, pick up stakes and leave. And again, look, I'm a sworn foe of the franchise system. Uh, shifting over to the soccer world, I mean, look, the soccer team we founded is literally founded in diametrical opposition to the franchise system because I think it is obscene, you know, that the Oakland Raiders pick up and move to 
Las Vegas and just mm. completely ditch their fans. It is, if you look at the way soccer works on the rest of the planet, it's completely antithetical to localism, a sense of place, uh, community engagement. Teams should be, uh, teams should never leave their communities. I despise the franchise system, but it ain't about that for me. It really is about the utility of this idea and the public interest. And again, if, if, if it didn't have sufficient utility, I wouldn't be for it. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to, I want to move on and, and zoom back out a little bit and talk about COVID recovery. Sure. Um, I guess the biggest question right now is, you know, we've got a lot of money coming in from the federal government. Some of it has already come in. Uh, so kind of what is the status of that ARP yep. money? Um, I know there's a commission that's been put together yep. to kind of lead that charge. Just yep. give us a status update. So the, the I believe their draft report was just published. If not, it will be in the next day or two. Um, again, we convened uh, just for those who are catching up at home. Uh, we received about $39.5 million from the federal government for the um, purpose of uh, the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, some of that money early on was carved out for immediate relief. But the bulk of it we left aside and said we will form uh, an equitable recovery commission, completely independent. Um, these stacks are actually what you're looking at on this table are the applications that we got. And we hired an outside consultant. Um, and this board went about it. And I mean, I'm telling you, they went about it completely independently. I did not get one. I was not in one of the meetings. I mean, and, and it was great because it allowed them to work in parallel Um Again, they looked at the one Chattanooga plan, was very gratified by the fact that they didn't, you know, uh, tear it up and start over. They, they bought it um, and, and they worked within that framework. And so, again, these stacks are all the requests. Um, now, what we did was essentially ask the commission to set the framework rather than giving them a checkbook and saying, okay, the whole point of this was to take the politics out of it mm-hmm. so that it wouldn't be a situation where it's like, oh, I know the mayor and the mayor's buddy. And that, and that is not what we're trying to do in any way, shape, or form. Um, so the idea was for them to, again, set this framework. Um, we got all these, some really fantastic creative um, requests in. And now that we have the framework from the commission, and again, I think that report is out. If not, it will be out very shortly for the public to read. Uh, we will kind of go back to the well. In many cases, we've got submissions that are overlapping uh, or where you've got a couple of nonprofits who really should be joining uh, forces to try, to try to address a problem um, and uh, and then making final um, recommendations, I guess, in another month or two. So... We'll be seeing those recommendations soon, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Yep. Uh, I, I'm also curious, you know, more from a, I don't know, maybe business development standpoint almost, mm-hmm. uh, what is your administration doing to keep up with the economic and cultural shifts that COVID has accelerated? So things like work from home, Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people not just working from home here in town, but working from home when their company is across the country. Yeah. Uh, and, and people moving from large, more expensive cities to Chattanooga mm-hmm. and, and maybe warping the market a little bit. So what is the administration's framework around these issues? Yeah, it's tough. I and mean, we're all trying to get our, our hands around it. Um, I do think the externalities of COVID, you know, again, over and above the actual medical, you know, pandemic um, in many ways are m- much more impactful, certainly down the road. I was on a 
a call with a uh, with a group of other mayors from around the country and uh, with a Harvard professor who was I don't know why it didn't occur to me, but you know uh, he pointed out that look, you know, all these terrible things that mayors are dealing with from from affordable housing issues to to um, homelessness to mental health to, and addiction, domestic violence, youth violence, these are all parts of the same whole. You know, it's as though, as I've said, somebody just took a waterbed and went, woof, you know, and just pushed down on it and just created this, this, this terrible ripple effect of, uh, of disruption. So, um, you know, look, we, we're, we're, we are wrestling each one of them to the ground on their own merits. Uh, I'll say the work from home thing obviously is a good thing on the balance for Chattanooga, but I think we'd be crazy to think that, uh, it's not related to our, uh, um, sorry, cuckoo clock, uh, to our homelessness, uh, uh, and our affordable housing rather, uh, issues. So, um, that's part of the urgency behind the affordable housing fund, because as I've said many times before, what's become much, much clearer to me in the last month or so is that I can do all the economic recruitment with my right hand that I want, but if I'm not also with my left hand helping to solve affordable housing and workforce development issues, it's all for naught. Mm-hmm. It's just going to cr- create more problems than it solves. So it's it's both and. It's not either or. Right. So one thing that uh, a couple of listeners brought up is the idea of uh, like a remote work program that Tulsa just yep. instituted a program. I mm-hmm. think it's $10,000 of a, yep. basically a relocation bonus, yep. say. You've got a great job. You're spending a lot of money. Come yep. live here and yep. we'll give you $10,000 to help you relocate. Yep. Do you think that is something that would be beneficial to Chattanooga? Is that something your administrative administration has considered? We definitely have. We have considered it. But again, it's like um, I mean, we're reading right now. We're reading as a, as a, as a cabinet. We're reading Simon Sinek's book, um, Start With Why, you know, um, which is, you know, um, it's, it's not terribly profound um but it it, around the project of kind of reframing city culture uh, around purpose but it's relevant to this conversation in that you know one of the points that he makes is there are only really two ways to to um um you know to change people and that is to either manipulate them or to inspire them right and manipulate you generally has this pejorative sense but i don't mean it in that sense he doesn't mean it in that sense but, you know, we manipulate each other with money all the time, right? I mean, if we pay somebody 10 grand to come here, which we, we could do, um, it's, it's, uh, it's transitory mm-hmm. and, and it might not last. I think what's extraordinary about Chattanooga is that, you know, it really is this fantastic place to live. And I've, it becomes to me, my, my charge to our team has been, how do we rather tell our story better so that people, you know, from the gig and, you know, 10 gig fiber to all of our outdoor assets. What we're going to be doing to answer your question finally is, is really standing up in the same way that we do a really great job of, of marketing for tourism. We need to market for, for talent recruitment. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you can expect to see. We're going to use a lot of those same uh, marketing assets that we use to bring people here to visit to get people to come here and live. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's a better investment than just hanging dollars out for you know people to grab. So I want to shift to uh, some kind of rapid fire questions. Yep. Just things, this is mostly related to kind of things you talked about during your campaign. Yeah. Um, so we'll start with, uh, as of December, I'm pulling from a Times Free Press article, mm-hmm. it was the last thing I could find. Your business assets had not yet 
technically been placed into a blind trust yep. as you had promised during the campaign. Yep. Has that been done? It has been. Yeah, it has been done. Yeah. Okay. Take just lawyers, lawyers and lawyers. Yeah. Takes forever, Takes but yeah, it's done. All okay. but, I should say, um, Southern Honda, it's in East Ridge, so not not in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in the trust, um, just because it's much less complicated. Less all my all my city related stuff is in the trust. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, next one. How are the potholes coming? What's kind of the <laughs> the framework there? They're coming again. Uh, what what I learned when I got here is that there was both good news and bad news. Um, actually, you know, a lot more knowledge and forethought had gone into this. I mean, we keep track of a pavement condition index, a PCI, for every single road in Chattanooga and have tremendous amounts of data. And, again, we knew as a city, um, prior administrations, that that it was going to take six or seven million bucks to keep that PCI, that pavement condition index, at level. Oh, wow. And we were spending three, which is pretty, pretty, you know, it, it's pretty hard to swallow, knowing that, we we knew, and, right. but but anyway, uh, so we're spending ten. We're spending ten this year. We spent ten last budget year. We're spending ten this year. We're, we'll budget ten for each each year here just to try to catch up, mm-hmm. and we will be caught up by then. Uh, and so it's going right. Uh, I got a little flack over the winter time because people were like, "What happened? You know, my roads are still crappy." But you know, people don't you know paving crews don't really work over the winter for. Not so obvious reasons, but anyway, they're cranking back up now, and I think you'll see. Um, we we now have, believe it or not, a, a pothole czar, sort of a pothole inspector that can go right out and evaluate a situation, see if it is in fact a pothole or if it's a road failure. Um, last but not least, uh, we're working on a project to actually publish our schedule of, okay, w- of what will be paved and where. Uh, we're a little hesitant to do that at first because the city council has got something to say about it. And of course, you know, you know, <laughs> district one wants, you know, there's a little bit of politics involved in that, right. but not a ton. We ought to be able to give people a rough idea of when they can expect their roads will be paved. And mm-hmm. so that that's coming soon. Well, especially if there's data attached to that, of, like, of here's, course. here's the PCI. There's an actual index. number, you know, I mean, this there's is why a, this one's ahead yep, of that one. Okay. You got it. So I, I look forward to, to seeing that. Mm-hmm. Um, Almost tongue-in-cheek question, but not really. How does one summon the potholes are to come and look at their potholes? 311. 311. And I figured that was the re- Related to that, we are also in the process of... Uh, we've gone through... Oh, boy. I mean, God bless Tyson Morrison. The new uh, um, tech, technology services manager has got a lot on his plate. And uh, we, we, are, we are on the... We were at the cusp of launching, relaunching 311 a couple of times. And frankly, I sent them back to the well and said, it's not good enough. It's not ready. Um, when it is done, again, we're going to be redoing the, the whole city website. And the idea is to try to integrate that uh, in a thoughtful way with 311, with a better 311. Um, and, and seeing if we can fold in a lot of smart city related, um, you know, crowdfunded app functionality. To, to really, you know, put us out on the on the forefront of, of what it means to be a smart city. So uh, that is happening. And meanwhile, 311, I mean, I use it. I'm sure a lot of listeners do. It's not great, but it's, it's not doesn't suck. I mean, it does the it basic works, stuff, yeah. right? Right. You know, you can request a brush pickup. I mean, and, you know, more to the point, Red Bank doesn't have one. East Ridge doesn't have one. I mean, it, it is a nice benefit, but it could be better. And um, as everybody here knows, one of my watchwords is good as the enemy of great. So um, we're pushing forward, and it will be great when we're done with it. 
is there a timeline for that kind of digital overhaul or is it still yeah i mean boy howdy you know there's that's the thing in government right there's an rfp and there's so it's by the end of this year we will be um we will be we will we'll be digging into it. It won't be done. I would say, you know, under promise and over deliver, um, probably really by the, by this time next year, Okay, but it'll be done. Mm-hmm. I would expect. Yeah. Um, so you campaigned heavily on early childhood education saying you would dedicate every extra dime in the couch cushions yep. to early childhood education. Yep. What progress has been made in that zone and, and what's kind of the future? Well, you know, candidly, we, I wouldn't say we got over a barrel as much as we we were watching the federal legislation mm-hmm. um, because build back better legislation that was proposed on the Biden administration you know the the really the core of the whole thing was universal universal early pre-k and we thought well you know uh, if that's happening then we need to kind of get the structure in place for that uh, and and again um, without getting too in the weeds of, uh, of federal politics, um, I'm given to understand that, you know, Joe Manchin, who was the, who was the, uh, hitch and the giddy up on a lot of the build back better stuff, um, is, has always been pro, um, early childhood. So we'll see, um, at this point, and that's kind of where we are. And in the meantime, it's not like we've been doing nothing. Again, a lot of this has been, as we started the podcast saying, rewiring. Um, we've got a new head of the department in Caritza Mosley Jones, who was there, um, from the very beginning, um, and knows her stuff extremely well. And, uh, we're in the process of kind of rebooting Head Start and, and really trying to, again, get it ready so that if the federal money does come and, and I'm cautiously optimistic that it will, mm-hmm. uh, we'll be ready to roll. Uh, I should also say too, that we're working really closely with the Hamilton County school system and Chattanooga 2.0, um, really hand in glove on a, a number of projects that one included, mm-hmm. um, to kind of improve the whole educational ecosystem good um so in our first interview i asked what is one thing that you are completely confident you can get done and that you said you would retime the traffic signals yeah uh is that still a goal and if so yeah oh how's it coming what's, what's the timeline yeah. there so <laughs> boy talk about frustrating uh things um so when we got in to office we moved signalization from um <laughs> from the public works department to IT, because that's really where it belongs. Interesting. Um, and then we had a change in the head of IT. Uh, and we discovered that although it was best, it is best practice to retime traffic lights every three years, we hadn't retimed ours in 10, in 10 years. So again, probably shouldn't surprise anybody that they're pulling their hair out like me. Um, so, and then. <laughs> Then, you know, we discover, oh, well, we need to apply to the state for the grant to retime the lights. Uh, and that is, has just now turned around like six months later. I mean, all the old adages about everything taking forever in government are <laughs> unfortunately true. So it is happening. Um, I can tell you that, uh, the team in IT has retimed or is in the process of playing with some, um, some tw- twinning, some scenarios to, to look at some key corridors to retime them. So again, it's kind of a microcosm of the entire first year. It's happening, just not quite fast enough. Right. That's exciting though. I, I yeah. never would have thought of moving that from, from transportation to, to IT. So yeah. that's, that's interesting. Yes, that's- um, one of your campaign goals, and this is also related to transportation, was to make major Carter routes free. Yeah. 
Is this still a goal and what is the status there? It is still a goal. And uh, again, COVID, I, I guess not perhaps naively, I thought COVID would be done earlier. Um, CARTA is just now kind of scraping back together and coming up for air. Uh, and and so that that remains to be, you know, kind of executed. Uh, I think that our, our, in, our, our goal is to get that done by sometime in the middle of next year to okay. be able to budget that in a way. I will say this too, which is kind of exciting. We are in the process of, of investigating sort of a municipal ID program that could also double as a CARTA pass card so that, you know, we would be able to target certain residents and make either the whole system free for them or certain routes free. So right. the, it's gotten more complicated to make matters even more complicated. Um, there is now a company that we just, and I'm excited about this, uh, contracted with um, to, to begin working with called VIA. That is essentially the Uber of public transportation. Uh, so imagine that you've got an app and you just, just like you take an Uber, you know, you, you, you call a bus and, uh, and that's another possibility. So it went from being, uh, you know, a, a fairly simple idea to suddenly getting a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but, you know, we're still dedicated to doing it and, and maybe able to actually expand the access. The question is, what exactly does it look like? Right. It doesn't make sense to like, let's say, let's take the number three line and just make that one free. Right. That was, the, that was kind of where we wound up settling. Uh, we can do better than that. And I guess that's what I'm saying is we're in the process of trying to figure out what better looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last transportation-related question. One of your campaign ideas was to promote uh, discounted or free parking, some sure. kind of scheme like that for residents uh, or some kind of perk yep. for residents, especially in the downtown area. Um, how's that going? Not fast enough. That's <laughs> another one where, you know, it's a so car thing. It's a, it's a car to deal. We've met with Park Mobile a couple of times. The technology definitely exists to be able to do this. Um, it's just, you know, can- candidly, again, um, CARTA is not a city department. Uh, we didn't talk about the airport. Also not a city department. I've spent a lot of time. In fact, I met with um, Lisa from CARTA this morning, you know, um, really trying to light a fire under some of these organizations to move faster. Mm-hmm. But they have their own boards. And they have their own management. And I can control the purse strings. That's about it. So, um, again, I'm going to stay at it until it happens, but it just, it's not a snap your fingers thing. Right. Right. Let's see. So another of your campaign goals was to give the city council a legislative analyst. Yeah. And I think I heard some news about this that's being run through UTC. Mm -hmm. How does that work? And is any of that information publicly available in terms of like what their recommendations or you know, views are? I, I honestly do not know because it's in their budget. Okay. But I think that's a, a, I didn't want to go try to tell them how to run their stuff. Um, but I do think that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, again, it's uh, uh, we also talked about, you know, splitting the city attorney function and having the, a, a, their attorney and our attorney. And we haven't done that. And uh, but you know, it's, this is, we want to make sure they got the information they needed and, and that's how it panned out. Uh, so it's, it's, it's in their budget. It should be public. Um, but it's a, it's a contract relationship with a consultant at UTC who they can bounce out things to on a, you know, on a, on an as needed basis for, for, um, analysis and feedback. Okay. Yeah. I'll follow up with, uh, with Darren on that. Yeah. And Darren's going to make a great chairman. I'm glad to see him as chairman. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. a very, very civic minded guy who gets it. And, uh, obviously, you know, has his, 
his uh, asserted political affiliation, but I will say it has never gotten in the way of common sense for him. And so he's, um, he's, we're going to be able to get a lot done together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of, one of the favorite interviews I've done so far was I, back when he was the zone in chair. He knows it cold. He knows it like the back of his hand. He does. It was a yeah. great interview and I recommend it, especially yeah. with the questions we've already covered. If anybody's confused about zoning, go yep. listen to that yep. one. Yep. Um, let's see. What are your thoughts on the upcoming County mayor election? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll split this into two parts. Okay. One is a little loaded and one is not. Okay. Uh, are you willing to endorse any of the candidates? No. Okay. I, I mean, I've got I to work that with any the of them bit. and uh, I, I just, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be right. And it wouldn't, it, it's yeah. So that's a, a hard no. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Can you give us some insight on how you plan to make that transition to working with a new partner? I know them all right. And I can work with all and they all have their, their strong points. So, um, We'll see what, you know, the voters decide, but uh, I look forward to working with any of them and all of them. I'm never going to let, um, I mean, I can only control what I can control and I, and I know, but I'm never going to let, you know, my ego or, or, or anything on my end, um, pollute or impede, you know, that, that relationship because it's just too important to Chattanooga broadly, um, and I will say, conversely, I think each of those three understands that as well. I know Mayor Coppinger has made it abundantly clear to all of them that that is, like, uh, key. And, of course, he can't compel them to do anything. But um, um, but I think they've all, you know, certainly said the right things, and I, and I believe they, they, they understand that as well. Mm-hmm. So it's somewhat related to this, and this might be dependent yeah. on who wins this election. Yep. Uh, you mentioned the possibility of combining city and county wastewater treatment plants yep. to kind of gain some efficiency there. Is that still in the works? How much control do we even have over that? We have total control over it. Uh, I will say the city uh, um, really has the the ace of spades, as it were, in that you know the treatment plant is is ours, um, and the treatment plant can handle again little known fact the treatment plant can handle. Um, many, many times the capacity that it's currently. Yeah, handling. that is a common misconception. Yeah, the, the problem is it's a it's a it's a peak and valley problem, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so that's where these you know the the we're in the process of building these uh, basically overflow tanks, for lack of a better term. They hate that. Jacobs, the engineering company, says don't call them that. But I don't you know I don't know anybody that objects to that. I mean that's all they're there to do is catch. You know, again, we may have covered this, we may not have, but. Many people may not realize Chattanooga gets more annual rainfall a year than Seattle, and and when it comes, it comes right in the in the summertime in particular is torrential, mm-hmm. and that overwhelms the system, pushing sewage out in the river, hence the problem, right? So so we we've got to have a way to capture those and then trickle them back through the system in a way you know uh, that 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 can handle the flow. That's it. It's not that complicated at the end of the day. Um, However, you know, the, the eastern parts of the county uh, f- that are far, far away from this stuff, um, uh, have they are about to go under a consent decree themselves. And, and when they do, it's going to get real expensive. And a lot of folks out there who are anti-development and anti-growth, they're going to want the merger because otherwise, you know, the city you know, is going to continue to kind of, uh, you know, we'll see rate growth. I mean, that's that's baked in, but it's going to be tough. It's going to be real tough for them. So, so it, it would be good for the city and the County, but the, I would say the County is probably going to need it a little worse than the city. Um, and that's important to the city 
because again, uh, we can't annex anymore. Not that we would necessarily, but if this, if the Metro is going to continue on a steady, sustainable rate of economic growth, you know, we, we've got to look at it as, as one whole. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do. So I've got two more quick questions. Yep. I know we're, we're running short on time here, but uh, this year's property tax increase took many people kind of by surprise, uh, the combination of not really taking advantage of the the prorated tax rate and combining that with the huge increase in property values yeah. that we've seen. Um, people are just kind of wondering, was it really necessary, especially during a year that so many people are struggling with yeah. COVID and yeah. uh, kind of how that might look in the future as well? Yeah, I wouldn't worry about it in the future. I will say, you know, unfortunately, the scenario I inherited, which again was not necessarily malfeasance or neglect on the part of uh, prior administrations, but a lot of it was, um, you know, was was COVID, uh, COVID related, and and the fact that, but but the bottom line is we had a pay study uh, that was never implemented. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I inherited when I came in. And, um, and again, our first responders were way off the mark and we were losing people, you know, left and right. And this is a problem everywhere. I think knock on wood, we're starting to see kind of wage inflation flatten out a bit. Uh, so again, 24% is a huge bump. I understand that. And I, you know, and they, I should say as well, are eternally grateful for, for the taxpayers, uh, generosity and forbearance but it was absolutely necessary every dime of that of that increment of that increase went to pay for raises for fire police and public works that's that simple really um the millage rate i should add went down yeah it's just that the, the the it's just that the property taxes you know the the, the appraisals went up mm-hmm. um as, as we know so but i don't i don't see uh, I think we've got a, a you know, we've got a, a, a pay increase, a, a reasonable increase in pay built into the budget this year, but we're not. There's no more 20% increases. No, I don't. Needed. I mean, the fact that yeah. we had to do, if you, I mean, if you kind of, or listeners think about the counterfactual, right? If you go to your boss and say, and they've got to give you a 24% raise just to catch you up, how bad have they been, you know, how badly have they been treating you to that point, right? I mean, that it's it was obscene that we even had to do that. I mean, it was not, all we did was get them to back to even. We just got them back to scale based on a third-party you know, study. So it was unfortunately just, just flatly necessary. And then last question, uh, Patreon subscribers get to have their questions read on air. So this is from a patron. Uh, during your campaign, you expressed interest in getting CPD out of traffic enforcement. Yeah. Is this still a goal you wish to achieve? If so, how can the public make it happen? And I'll add on to that, uh, not just how can the public help make it happen, but what kind of is the mechanism that, that you would be pursuing? Yeah. So so there are a lot of things that we have talked about with, with CPD and CPD reform. Frankly, again, a lot of these issues that we've covered today um, have, have been hanging fire, waiting on a, a position to be filled. And that, to the point about the, our dysfunction in HR, you know, it's, it's just been, it's just been tough, right? Because I, what I can, anybody that's ever managed anything knows, right? You don't, uh, you don't present incoming departmental directors or managers with fait accomplis, right? With, with things that, you know, hey, by the way, we're in the middle of this, right? In, in a perfect world, even in, you know, a reasonably ideal world, you know, you wait, get the person in place and then, let them take a couple deep breaths and then you begin. Well, that's where we are with Chief Murphy, mm-hmm. right? Chief Murphy really just started. Um, 
And that will be one of the things that we will discuss. Candidly, we've got a lot more urgent things to discuss. Um, uh, the department has been really, you know, over and above the, the pay deficit. Um, I think pretty badly. Uh, well, they haven't been well taken care of from, from the city side of things. I think a lot of, a lot of cops have felt neglected and underappreciated. The communication between the department and, and, the, and the rest of the city and the mayor's office has not been great. So we're mending fences, right? And we're trying to get back on the good foot and kind of, you know, the same sort of rebooting of culture that we're doing here really, really applies there. And uh, again, first real tactical, um, you know, project is, is really the, the uh, alternative response unit. We're having great, great success there with a couple of officers and and one social worker, a woman named Jenna Parker, who's just done a fantastic job. But you know that's got to scale and and scale for impact, and so that's going to be really job one. Um, community policing in general, right? It, it comes comes with a lot of different. Uh, um, changes in the way that routine happens and, you know, getting, getting officers out of cars and, and into the, you know, into the neighborhoods, um, in a more visible way, um, getting youth more involved. Those things are all going to come first, but I, I, you know, at some point we will certainly, um, uh, look at, look at, uh, outsourcing traffic enforcement. Cause I, I, I do think that makes sense. And it's, and to be clear, you know, from the campaign, it wasn't so much traffic enforcement as it was, if I recall correctly, um, you know, like accident reporting, things of that mm. nature. That stuff is is really more forensic in nature and administrative. And, you know, that's not really what a, a cop wants to be doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we will take a look at it, but it ain't going to be tomorrow. Right. Yeah. So that's all the questions I have. I okay. do want to give you an opportunity if there's any other upcoming news that you want to share. I just well, want to give you the opportunity. Yeah, to no, I appreciate it. No, we've talked out. about, uh, I mean, we've covered, we've been around the horn. I would just ask people to... Uh, uh, well, okay. I'll put a shout out for Chatter Matters, right? Because it's very much related to what I know you're passionate about, and I am as well. And that is, um, it's a really cool project that's being run by a woman named a very talented woman named Mary Helen Montgomery over at the Enterprise Center. the The thesis is basically that, and I know you know this, or you wouldn't be here, mm -hmm. and your subscribers know it, or they wouldn't have paid paid to listen, and they should be paying if they're not. But um, the Broadly speaking, right, the the state of the of um, of of paid media, for lack of a better term, in the United States is sick unto dying. It's not in good shape. In mid-sized markets like Chattanooga, it's really bad. Right, mm -hmm. um, we're lucky. We've got some veteran reporters at at the at the broadcast stations, but for the most part, we have this this high churn of really young reporters that come and go. So there's no real continuity to the reporting um, because the business model is really fractured mm -hmm. and all these ad dollars are just spread super thin everywhere. You know, they just pull in a bunch of syndicated content. I, I, I watch uh, good morning Chattanooga uh, a lot of times when I'm having my coffee and it's not even good morning Chattanooga. It's just, I mean, it is to some extent I should, you know, shout out to, uh, to Greg Funderburg and all those guys. Cause I mean, they do as well as they can, but they're, you know, it's not local. They don't, they don't have right. good There's a lot local content about local fluff. issues. Yep. And look, I mean, again, not to be too alarmist about it, but, and not to make people roll their eyes, but democracy itself is really under assault. It's being slowly boiled uh, to death, 
right? And to me, the way you, and I know, I think you share this, the way you repair it is by getting people re-engaged with the basic mechanics mm-hmm. of, of civil government, civil government, civic government at the local level, municipal government, mm-hmm. because that's when people begin to realize that it matters, you know, when you go out and vote and it matters to show up to meetings and to get involved and, and, and call people because you can control things at the local level. That's how we reinvigorate democracy, right? Amen. So, so to that end, We've stood up this project with Mary Helen at the Enterprise Center called Chatter Matters. And what Chatter Matters will do will do is do what the local stations can't or won't do, which is generate long-form content uh, about matters in the public interest. Not as propaganda from the mayor's office, but truly, like, what's going on here about this thing, mm-hmm. right? And then syndicate it. They, they'll, they'll stand it up. You know, they'll have their own EPB channel and run things there. But they'll also give it away, right? If uh, if if Channel Nine or Three or Twelve or the radio station wants to run a feature, they can run it. It's free content, so it helps their business model too because they're not having to pay for it. Yep. And uh, so I'm very hopeful about that. Um, no, that's and, exciting. I I, yeah. I got grabbed coffee with Mary Helen a couple of weeks ago and, and talked about this, yeah. and we talked about maybe even collaborating on a couple. Of projects. I, that would be great, so, man. You, I mean, I, I would love I, for. I her really to, look forward to seeing. What yeah, you know, you can stick a camera in here, and uh, again, our. our we're, we're also so fortunate in Chattanooga to have EPB. People don't realize, like, having an electric yeah. and fiber utility with a stated mission of, of improving quality of life in your community is a massive uh, asset. And so, you know, they've been good enough to, again, tell us that there hasn't happened yet, but, you know, give us essentially a public access channel. And there's no reason you couldn't do this on a video camera and post it and run it on the channel, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I hope you guys can get together and do something because uh, – uh, it's important. It's really important. Well, great. Thank you so much for your time. I Thank know you're you. very busy, uh, but I really appreciate this. And hopefully we can catch up again a year from now and see how the second year has gone. I would love that because hopefully I'll have a hell of a lot more progress to report. <laughs> That's my goal. Well, thank you. Thank you, Ned. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chattanooga Civics. Our music was written and recorded by Kevin McLeod. If you have any questions or feedback, please send me an email at chattanoogacivics at gmail.com. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chatcivics, or visit the website chattanoogacivics.com. Thanks for listening. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.